And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. This is a landmark episode, one that marks the appearance on this show of one of my favorite investigative journalists of all time. Uh, I've watched her career for the last couple years and just been amazed at the the people that she gets, the things that she goes into, and the amount of research and credibility that goes into every story she presents. I'm talking about none other than Linda Moulton Howe. Yes, she is on the program today. She prefers to go by LMH, so that's how I'm going to refer to her. Now, I'm not going to put up any kind of pretend game here and tell you that that we're about to go live with the interview, because we're not. This interview was pre-recorded at Contact in the Desert 2017. Uh, Love those guys. They provided a great interview space. Cannot recommend that festival convention. I don't know what you'd call it. It's kind of like a... A festivention, um, a festival, whatever you want to call it, that's what it is. That a lot of people from the UFO community get together and talk about all kinds of things UFO related. And I was lucky enough to get Linda Moulton Howe to talk to me for an hour. There are a couple of caveats to this interview. Number one, for those of you familiar with this show, you know that I like to talk and interact with my guests. And just through sheer chance and coincidence, I don't really say anything. In this interview, so some of you, uh, so that may disappoint some of you, and that may please some of you. I guess we'll find out. Keep your opinions to yourself. But I will tell you that in Linda's own words, she has never said anything that you are about to hear ever to anyone before. That's not a lie. That's not hyperbole. She said it. If anyone wants to challenge me on that, I will send you the audio clip. So you're about to hear something brand new. No matter how much you thought you knew Linda, no matter how much. You, 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 no matter how much of this stuff that you thought you were aware of, you're going to learn something new today. And I will tell you this. It does not matter that I didn't say much in this episode. I'm fine with that. There's this little thing in sports called people, they're called intangibles. So people who do the things on the floor or on the, on the, on the field that you can't really calculate. You can't really put into a metric. You know, you can you can calculate home runs. You can calculate three free throw percentage. You can calculate the number of tackles. You can't always predict the guys who play that gritty defense because there's just not a metric for it. And I will tell you, all, all joking aside, there's something that I brought to this interview that allowed LMH to feel comfortable enough to open up about her entire career, her life early on into the future And you are about to embark on an audio journey, the likes of which neither you nor anyone else has heard before today. Well, besides me, of course, because I've had to QC it, so I've I've heard this already. But you haven't, nor has anyone else. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, LMH, can I call you that? Yeah. Um, LMH, it is an absolute honor, and I'm going to try to keep myself under control because this is... An absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, I love what you do. I think it's really amazing. And you do 
this type of work with um, with a gravitas and a credibility that a lot of people in this f field don't have. And I think it's really important. Um, you know, you got to start. Are you training people to do what you do? No. Because you should. <laughs> I don't have the time to. <laughs> we, because there's only one of you. Yeah. And um, we should really have a lot of people doing this kind of work. Um, now, I want to just point out that I am an open-minded skeptic. So I listen to a lot of this stuff and I don't take it in. But I like when people make really good arguments and when they talk to the right people. Um, but before we get into that, let's get into the serious stuff first, Linda Moulton Howe. I don't mean to have this be an ambush, but let's get into serious stuff. Uh, you were the 1963 Miss Idaho winner, were you not? <laughs> yes. what Put me through school. Did it really? Yeah. Uh, my dad worked for the state of Idaho, and I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. And the uh, salary pay for my father was uh, minuscule, and he loved every second of his life. He would fly everywhere as director of aeronautics. And my father was a person who really... I don't think he really cared about money ever. It was um, something that he transferred to both my brother and me, is find something in you that resonates with something on this planet and focus on that. And I've been so fortunate because that has been the evolution of my life, but you have to have the barter system. So I was born in 1942 and I was then in first grade in 1948, and I graduated from high school in 1960. And for people who were not alive then, the options for a female, even in the United States, in terms of scholarship money and doing something that would get you to college if your parents couldn't pay for it, there was very limited. And the one that did the most for so many of us was Lions Club sponsoring of Miss Boise, Miss Idaho to Miss America in Atlantic City. And when I uh, entered the Miss Boise pageant in uh, 1963, my hope was that I would get scholarship money. That was the only uh, goal I had was scholarship money for college. And I won that contest, and I went to the Miss Idaho pageant. And again, I had only one goal. I needed scholarship money. And I won that contest. <laughs> and in September of 1963, I was in Atlantic City. And I want to, people to understand that to walk in a swimsuit down a ramp that was approximately 60 or 100 feet long is one of the most horrible things that anybody <laughs> can be asked to do. And this actually leads to a funny story because all of us then in that pageant that year, I think we all felt the same. Nobody liked doing this. And almost every girl there that year from every state, we all talked about how most of us were there for scholarship money. That's the truth, uh, to get into college. Well, because we were all talking one day about how uncomfortable it was to walk this long ramp in a swimsuit, Len I can't remember, I know her first name was Lenore, but whoever she was, she was heading the Miss America pageant, she said, let me help you. When you start along that ramp and you're looking down at those faces, just see cabbages, 
just pretend you're on a farm. Just see cabbages. And there was something about the lilt and her voice, like I was listening to somebody in England telling a fairy tale <laughs> that I remember during swimsuit competition. It really did help. I was not thing. seeing faces. I kept hearing her voice. And I ended up with enough scholarship money to put myself uh, through the University of Colorado and uh, got a bat bachelor's degree in English literature. And then I went to work for the senator from Idaho, the state that I represented, in Washington for a year. And it was at the time where the Vietnam War and the atrocities were in the headlines everywhere. And I felt strongly that the United States was in a, uh, a war we should not be. And so I, in Washington, could see that the only heroes politically were the reporters. And that propelled me suddenly. The only thing I wanted to do was to become a reporter. And I remember I applied to several universities to go on. And Stanford University gave me a Stanley Bobert scholarship for two full years, paid everything at Stanford University. And it was there that the rest of my life was set in this regard. My beat in terms of being a student who had to do documentary films was in science, medicine, and the environment. That's all I was interested in. And so I did a, a film with the Stanford Medical Center that went on for 19 years after I graduated, being used by the Stanford Medical wow. Center. And my master's thesis was a picture calculus. And it seems strange now as we talk in May of 2017. But when I was at Stanford, 66 to 68, the Stanford Linear Accelerator was just beginning and trying to use computers to analyze bombardments. Wow. That's what my thesis was about. And I graduated, was hired in Los Angeles. I worked as a street reporter for KNBC for quite a while. And then I was hired to do a, a, a program, a documentary, and then a program in which I went to Washington, D.C., Sacramento, and throughout California, taking on national and, uh, issues. And we did that sort of like Edward R. Murrow did a long time ago, where I was uh, producing around a screen, a host, and issues. And that's, I was hired from there to start doing documentaries at KNBC. But I was married at the time, and my husband wanted to get an MBA at Harvard for some work he wanted to do. We moved to Boston, and I was hired to, to do medicine and science programming at the ABC station in, in Boston. And after two years, uh, my husband was uh, located with Time, Inc., uh, to start their videotape cable uh, unit in Denver, Colorado. And that's where I became director of special projects at the CBS station. And I was doing live studio shows, uh, news segments, and documentaries. And it was in the summer of 1979 that my audio guy had come off of a shoot for a brand new TV program out of New York then called 2020, just started. Wow. And my cameraman and audio man, we are at lunch one day working on 
totally uh, just an environment program. And he said, hey, Linda, you know how you're always on me to keep the battery belts going? Because that's another thing people don't realize. For those of us in news, in the end of the 60s, going through all of the 70s into the early 80s, we did double system. Audio Guy had a crystal in Inagura, and that's why he had to use clap sticks. Mm -hmm. And the uh, cameraman had a huge camera that he had to weigh. They had to have cables between the two, so your audio and your camera had to work like a ballet team together. Mm -hmm. I'm the producer, writer, director, editor, and so I am working with them also like a ballet team, but the, our lifeblood, it's hard to believe today, were battery belts that the audio guy and the cameraman, either both or one, had to have powered through the night and be wearing through the day or we couldn't work. So when Mark said, you know how you're always on me about keeping battery belts charged, and I always liked a minimum of eight, he said, we're on this shoot for the ABC network and we're going out to all these Midwestern ranches and there are these animals and they're lying there dead and there's no blood and we couldn't even find tracks around the animals' bodies. And Linda, cow after cow, we had no battery power. Hmm. And we in the crew, we were embarrassed. This is ABC Network. And we know that they have been charged through the night. What is draining all of the battery? They couldn't make any of them run. So now he's really got my attention. And I said, well, who's the EP on this, the executive producer? And he told me, and I think it was Rune Arledge then, because we're going back to, uh, to the 79 period. So I call up ABC Network. I'm director of special projects, projects at the CBS station in Denver, but my audio guy on a project says, you've just shot over 100,000 feet of double system film, which nobody did because of the money. Where is this? When are you going to broadcast this? And that EP on that new ABC show said to me these words, oh, we trashed it. We're in the business of news and we couldn't come to an answer. And that is exactly the moment. I didn't realize that the next nearly 40 years of my life would be hooked to that answer from that ABC network guy, but it was. Because I'm a very pragmatic, down-to-earth, left-brain, science, medicine, and environment. And I have a crew guy who told me they couldn't keep the batteries going. I'm now talking with an EP in New York who said they trashed over 100,000 feet of film, huge expense, because they couldn't get an answer. Well, whatever my soul is, it was like, okay, this is your next project. You're going to get to the bottom of whatever these animal mutilations are. Quite truly, this is how it began. Within two weeks of that phone call to that EP in New York, I'm sitting in an office up in Sterling, Colorado, Logan County, 
I am with a man named Tex Graves who had just retired from 23 years as sheriff. He has 266 color Polaroids that he took himself. And we lay them out and he tells me stories about each of these. And I put them in chronological order and I am stunned at what I'm looking at and at one point he looked right into my eyes and he's, he knew me because I was director of special projects at the CBS station. He said, Linda, I'll save you some time. The perpetrators of these animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. Now, I remember how I felt at that moment. My dad used to put electric wire around the fences to keep out the dogs and I remember with my brother touching those electric fences just for experimentation and not liking the feel at all. Sure. And the exact same feeling hit me as that sheriff said that. And that 220 volt kind of feeling that your mind remembers, from that moment on there was another paradigm shift for me that I will never forget and have actually resented. Up until that discussion in September of 1979, my passion in life was astronomy. When I was in grade school, I had put a sign up in the local Boise uh, Public Library. I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. And I said if there were any uh, students who were interested in astronomy to call Linda Moulton and my phone number then, 208-343-9648, I still remember. Yeah, I remember phone it's, number. It's, That's it's a thing of the past, wow. It's part of my wow. tissue. Um, <laughs> six guys and I ended up founding, officially, the Boise Astronomical Association. And we would take telescopes out. We were part of the International Geophysical Union year um, and all of this. The sky at night, to me, was, I guess, what... Kids today looking at iPhones, that's the digital world today. When I was in grade school, junior high and high school, I loved, and these six guys loved, was at night we spent endless hours with telescopes, sort of in awe of the universe and wanting to learn as much as we could about everything that we could see. We built telescopes. I thought I would become an astronomer, but I became a reporter, and now I know why, because of the life I've had. But why this is was so strangely a game changer for me in that sheriff's office is that when I walked out at twilight and the sky was orchid heading toward darkness, all of my life before then, I loved the night. I never felt a twinge of fear. And suddenly I'm getting into the car and the sheriff has said, the perpetrators are creatures from outer space. And I've looked at 266 color Polaroids that included a steer that had been paralyzed on all sandy dust and there wasn't a track anywhere around this body, but an ear, eye, tongue, jaw flesh, 
genitals and rectum have been excised surgically. There's no blood, but this steer's head is in an eight-inch deep hole. And the sheriff said that when he and the deputy were trying to walk toward this animal, that he said, let's take photos first because I don't understand what we're looking at. And they took photos, and then they went and measured the hole. And Sheriff Tex Graves said to me, Linda, the only thing we could, could conclude is that whatever did this was able to paralyze this animal on the ground, lying in perfect legs, perfect, no struggle, no agony shown in the sand, but whatever did this left the head unparalyzed. And the sheriff said, we think this animal dug this hole with its head in the agony of what was happening. So the dark shadows of who or what would do this and why came crashing in on me that day and that night. And when I got in my car, it had a sunroof. And I found myself, for the first time in my life, reaching up and pulling the sunroof closed. And when I did that, I still can remember, what are you doing? And I remember reaching back up and opening up the ceiling. I'm starting to drive with a two and a half hour drive and it became pitch black with stars. And when I pulled up, at my home in Littleton, Colorado, and I went into the garage in my car, I was not the same person that I was two hours before. I walked into the kitchen and my husband, who was a corporate person and always beautifully dressed, he had come home from a late meeting and he was standing at the kitchen and I came in and, and I was just full of, you won't believe this, but a sheriff told me that extraterrestrials are on this planet mutilating animals. And I remember my husband looking at me and basically being also very pragmatic and saying, well, we still have to get up in the morning and go to work. And that is the sum of the fall of 79 to May of 2017, sitting here in front of you. Wow. This huge, vast, global phenomenon linked to the presence of aliens, and all of us have still had to get up every day and do life on planet Earth. And I do to this day, and I have tried very hard never, ever to return to the fear and the anxiety that I felt that night for the first time in my life about the sky. But the value of it was, if I moved into temporary fear, if a night sky that had always been my friend suddenly became ominous, what would happen to the rest of the planet if they knew the truth? And I had to live with that and write with that and edit with that for the whole 90-minute production of A Strange Harvest that was broadcast May 25, 1980. And it was like a bomb went off. 
Back then, remember, we only had landline phones and writing, typewriter or ink. And for two months after May 25, 1980, a strange harvest broadcast at the highest rating before, during, or since. It got a 19 rating and a 37 share in Nielsen and Arbitron. It was a huge audience, which meant that it went beyond Colorado to the surrounding states. And it's because I scratched the tip of an iceberg. What started coming into the station, literally, to my upstairs office, they were dragging two or three of these big canvas bags full of letters. The switchboard every morning would say, Linda, we are so sorry. We cannot keep up with the phone calls for you on a strange harvest. And if you boiled down everything I saw, letters with illustrations of non-humans, animal mutilations, all kinds of strange stuff. And I realized I'm just, this, this is everywhere. This is now showing me that this is a global and that the human audience out there is intense. And this leads to something very important. Within two weeks, with all of this, the highest rating, nobody had ever seen mail come in like this. No one had ever had the switchboard overwhelmed. The general manager, who I knew very well, we had gone back to New York together when I had a National Emmy nomination for an environmental series I had done. He knew me very well. He trusted me implicitly. I think I'm going up for, who knows, maybe another award ceremony, something. And as soon as I saw the general manager's eyes as I went through the door, I knew something was wrong. And he said, Linda, I know that you want to keep investigating the mutilations and the UFOs, but I'm here today to tell you you can't do any more because we're not going to lose sponsors over this. And at that moment, inside of my mind came many things simultaneously. But the big shock was that this man who was my friend was telling me whether it was correct, and I really didn't believe what he said, that we were going to lose sponsors. But I was so naive, I was so innocent about what the government of the United States did to people who ran businesses to people who ran media, that it never occurred to me at that moment, standing with him, that somebody in CIA, NSA, DIA had made a contact and the excuse would be that we could not lose sponsors. This would not be the last time that I had an interference that was stopping a project that was really important in the name of something that was funny. I remember I was dismayed and I tried to argue, and this was another huge paradigm shift. Because no matter who you are as a reporter or a journalist, if the owner of a station 
or an owner of a network gets a call from somebody in the CIA, you don't allow her to do any more investigations. There is not a station manager or a corporate owner that will take the reporter's side. They will always go with the government because they have to deal with the big consequences of keeping a business going and they don't want interference and they have their bottom lines to protect. So that was the beginning of my realizing that even if this was a worldwide phenomenon affecting all of these people, writing all of these letters, all of these phone calls, and that I have seen by then, nine months, took me nine months to make this film. They were 18-hour days. I never took a break, not once in nine months. If I knew I was not dealing with predator disease or satanic cults, and yet everywhere around the planet, as if somebody had the ability to put that sentence in, whether it was newspapers, on radio or television, like a mantra, animal mutilations were always dismissed as predator, disease, or satanic cult. And walking out of that general manager's office, disoriented, but not wanting to give up, I kept remembering the first official person that I brought to my office at the station. I had gone to the sheriff's office. The first person I brought into my office was a Catholic priest in the Denver diocese that did exorcisms. I had him come and look at some of these photographs that the sheriff had given me and I had gotten, and I didn't front load. I just said, sir, would you look at these photographs and tell me, is this satanic cult? And the priest, in his white collar and his black, spent maybe three minutes in silence looking at what I had. And then he turned to me and said, no, this is nothing like what I deal with. When we are dealing with exorcisms and the devil, he said, it's always blood. So that was a data point from a Catholic priest right at the beginning that was blowing out of the window one of the three common explanations around the world. Then when you applied forensic examination with veterinarians and hematologists and all the people that I went through, gathering uh, uh, reports that had been done in labs, excisions by high heat over and over. Well, what's the instrument? What is the instrument of high heat that would explain why these are bloodless? The complexities of the forensic evidence that between 1979 and 2017 that I have reported endlessly in the books that I have done in Alien Harvest, Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 1 and 2, they make about a thousand pages, those two books alone, uh, hundreds of documents and photographs and everything you would want to know about what is what are the facts in these animal mutilations, not the government counterintelligence explanation. They're the ones behind this. 
counterintelligence. This is the way they work. They put out mantras that the media will pick up with, run, and then it becomes the audience, the uh, U.S. audience or the global audience. They then respond, just like a Cheerios ad. What's responsible for animal mutilations? Predators, disease, and satanic cults. None of it is true. So by 2017, the, the different Linda Moulton Howe now from 1979 is, I've had to go up against the United States government. I know that they don't play fair. They play under the belt. They have national security to protect. Uh, and as far as I know and the Jim Mars knows and a lot of people know, the documents that have been begun to emerge that John F. Kennedy had directed the director of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1963 to bring him every document, photograph, film, and shred of evidence about an alien presence on this planet, and he wanted it delivered to the Oval Office in the White House. And that it appears, reading in between the lines of the documents that exist, that Alan Dulles, then the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, perceived that the CIA's charter from September 18, 1947, under Truman, the CIA was brought about because of the crashes in New Mexico, for no other reason. The Central Intelligence Agency from 47 to 63 had taken the position that its charter to keep the world forever in the dark about an alien presence and the back engineering of an alien technology for the gain of the United States of America and to keep alien technology out of the hands of the Soviets and our perceived enemies, trumped the request of John F. Kennedy, the President of the United States, to know everything that the CIA knew about extraterrestrial biological entities and extraterrestrial biological technology and that a decision was made and probably could have been defended before a congressional inquiry that the CIA's need to protect the policy of denial in the interest of national security trumped the survival of a president who wanted to violate that policy. That's how serious this all is. How can anyone at night look out into a sky and know that we now estimate there could be 13 trillion suns in this universe alone? And we are in the backwater of one little arm in one galaxy called the Milky Way, trillion galaxies, it's absurd. Jacques Vallée, John Keel, Charles Fort, 
all three of those men raised the fundamental question. Everything about this phenomena implies that humans are someone else's perceived property and the planet Earth is under some kind of a, a very exotic control system. And if the animal mutilations and the human abductions give us any honest insight, the whole bottom line to everything, genetic harvesting to, manip to manipulate genes to create clones and hybrids to be used by an alien presence. Well, let me, so that's a lot to digest. There's a lot going on there. Um, the thing that I think struck me the most is when you had several profound life changes, like events that happened that kind of changed your life course. Would you give, you, you love this guy, you love astronomy. Um, when you kind of lost your innocence w over uh, doing a strange harvest, would you ever give that back? Would you ever trade the knowledge back for ignorance, you know? Kind of like Men in Black when they do the little zap your brain, would you ever erase it for anything? Innocence comes in very many levels. And when you have known nothing but flowers and grace and life just seem to evolve in a perfect way and you know nothing, to stay there, for me, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> what? <laughs> The, the, I've, I have walked so much territory in both hemispheres of this planet. I have gone by myself carrying formalin and plastic and scalpels, and I have gathered tissue by myself from uh, fields, pastures, all over the place. And to do that, I had to have a discussion with myself if the government or the alien intelligence doing the mutilations for a genetic harvest, if they want you gone, they don't have to wait for you to be alone in a pasture. So just go do it. I had that discussion with myself. Mm -hmm. I'm still here. I have gathered tissue from maybe 30 or 40 animals all over the place and worked with a hematologist. And my point is, with innocence, you have no fear. It is only when you feel fear in life that you're beginning to evolve. And that you have to go through stages of fear to get on the other side to be stronger with a broader perspective and look back and almost laugh at yourself at what you have been afraid of when you were in innocence. I think that what has happened through this whole evolution from 79 to 2017 for me, life and death in this universe are the machinery. We can all argue about whether reincarnation is real. What happens at the moment of death? Everything that I personally have experienced or learned in this complex 16-layer chess game that I have been in since 1979. If we look at the universe itself 
as a teacher, everywhere from 13, in the 13.8 billion light year universe, we see the same physics, we see replication like fractals. We see that the plant world grows and keeps spreading seed. And that in the spreading of the seed, the plant world is essentially has a kind of immortality, at least up to an apocalypse. Humans and animals, we see that they go through various levels and short lifetimes of flies, long lifetimes of elephants. Humans are approximately 72 to 75 as an average. You can step back from this and say, why should we be in a universe or on a planet where there's entropy at all? Entropy is the winding down of energy to zero. Zero on birth and life is death. But there are also so many voices that have written through the past few decades and have done investigations with people who have had near-death experiences and the work of Michael Newton, lives between, life between lives. And you sort of step back and you say, if the universe is teaching us something and physics is teaching us something, today one of the biggest, most exciting aspects of physics and quantum physics is that this universe is only one of possibly an infinite number. And that if it is, and if dimensional and dimensions are as infinite as the number of matter universes, then the concept of going through with a soul, and that the soul is the eternal part going in and out of containers, I think I've come down on that side that I think that's true. Is it possible that some of the alien intelligences that have been interacting with this solar system, this galaxy, do they all have souls? Is part of what is behind the whole last five or 10,000 years of very strange secret societies and tremendous amounts of books and literature about evil versus good, dark versus light, why would the yin and yang symbol be the metaphor for this universe? The yin and yang in the one big white circle is a small black. In the big black circle is a small white. If you say that the metaphor is the white is the good, the black is the not good. White is light, black is dark. White is divine good, Black is evil, and that those two, those two areas, those two regions, are somehow inextricably bound with each other in this universe. Why would that be? Why do we have death and war and destruction? How can we be on a planet with Syria happening and with all of the people that are dying of starvation in Africa? How is this possible? If the whole bottom line is what physicist Tom Campbell, three big volumes, it's called 
my big toe, T period, O period, E period, physicists immediately know that stands for the theory of everything. He has this beautiful description of this universe. An entropy reduction trainer for souls. This may be the only universe in an infinite number where its entire goal is to juxtapose the dark with the white. Put souls in there and it may take trillions of years but maybe eventually every soul will choose the light. Would the non-humans that are mutilating animals, and hu perhaps humans, some, some, not very many, but involved in genetic harvest from Earth, would they have souls? Are they soulless? If they have souls, is their desperation in all of this genetic harvest from Earth and other planets because something has happened in their own biological evolution and they will go extinct if they don't get DNA harvested from other planets. If that were the bigger box in which all this is happening, I've always thought I could have compassion I think Homo sapiens sapien could have compassion for another life form if they stood up in front of us and say, we really need help from your planet. But it hasn't gone down that way. We're living with at least five to 10,000 years from Mesopotamia of brutality, territoriality, a so-called advanced intelligence fighting each other and their own families with, apparently, atomic bombs. This new book out by Chris Hardy, Wars of the Anunnaki, Nuclear Self-Destruction in Sumer, translated from the cuneiform. And they made us, that's what it says, it's exactly what Zechariah Sitchin in 12 books. The Anunnaki, a tall species from someplace else in the universe, comes to this solar system, territorializes, wants gold, which must be valuable throughout the cosmos. Gold is, has a lot of good properties. And they decide they need to make something that will be indigenous to this earth to be strong enough to do the gold digging, the gold mining, the harvesting, the smelting, because whatever they are, they either don't want to get their hands dirty or they're not strong enough physically for an oxygen-rich atmosphere, which is what was here uh, five to 10,000 years ago. You boil that down, Everything about the Anunnaki literature is these extraterrestrials manipulated DNA and already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. The document that I was shown at Kirtland Air Force Base trying to do a home box office special that the government blocked said that this was a briefing paper for the President of the United States on the subject of unidentified aerial craft and says write in it twice 
these extraterrestrial biological entities manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. And Latin is in the briefing paper for the president. And on the second to the last page in the top, Project Garnet, all caps, all questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapien on this planet have been answered in this project is closed. And I remember reading both of those paragraphs over and over and over there, sitting in this Air Force Office of Special Investigations with a, a FOSI agent staring at me. And I think that is the true answer. Extraterrestrial biological entities have manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. Now, Homo sapien is the definition from Lucy in Africa to us sitting here today in May of 2017 as Cro-Magnon Homo sapien sapien. But the box is a standing up primate. How many models of standing up primates have there been in the last two million years? A lot. And the one right before us, Neanderthalensis. Tall, vigorous, the cubic brain size of Neanderthal, bigger than what followed Cro-Magnon, Homo sapiens, sapien us. We know they buried their dead. We know they put flowers on the graves because we have found Neanderthal skeletons buried in graves with all of the seeds in a rectangle. They now think that some of the beautiful paintings in Spain and Portugal and France along the mountains were done by Neanderthalensis. They had been ascribed to Cro-Magnon before. Why would Neanderthal have been taken out and Cro-Magnon Homo sapien sapien replace it? And today in 2017, as more and more people are writing about hybrids, there may not be a single Cro-Magnon Homo sapien sapien left on planet Earth because silently and quietly hybridization has been going on, maybe in every pregnancy. And that we are now a different model, a completely different model, but we're not the end. And the hybrid books, Barbara Lamb, Meet the Hybrids, all of them, anticipate that Cro-Magnon Homo sapien sapien will be replaced 100%. But it may not be at all with any consciousness whatsoever. And all of this goes back to 1979 when I wanted to find out what was happening to all these animals where there would be no blood and no tracks and talking with ranchers who saw beams come down out of round things in the sky, saw animals go up and animals come down and be mutilated by whatever this round technology was in the sky, and not a single one of them would ever stand up in front of anybody's TV camera.
because humans are more cruel to humans. They're much more afraid of each other, humans, than they are of ETs. But if in these last almost 40 years, we are finally, we are finally at a point where there is a true insight that Charles Fort, John Keel, we're property. Earth is in a control system. And I guess what fuels me now in all of what I'm trying to investigate, Homo sapien, sapien, needs to be freed. We're either going to become extinct, just like Neanderthal and all the others, to be replaced by a hybrid, or we are at a very narrow intersection right now. Consciousness alone might make the difference if these governments would let go, release all of the lies and the policies of denial, and if all 7.2 billion people on this planet could be told most of the truth at the same time, it might be the one thing that the non-humans never would expect that humans would do. And it might be the very act that would stop the wars and make us start challenging what we've been told is the truth and actually start preparing ourselves to see things as they really are, and we are expendable. And I have to go. And just like that, she really did have to go. Very much like Batman throws those little smoke bombs on the ground and disappears into the night, so did Linda Moulton Howe into the mist of the unknown back to the conference. So that is our interview. However, she did promise to do a follow-up, and I plan to take her up on that. There's so much going on in her world, and she is the only one doing her type of investigative journalism that I will have her on the show in the future, I promise. But for now, I want to thank you for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every single episode or if you're interested in following the show on social media, you can find links to it at the bottom of that exact page. Now when I say social media, I'm talking about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube page. All that is found on FascinatingNouns.com, and you can also subscribe to the newsletter. And I think this is great, not only because I write it, but it's articulate, it's fun, and it will tell you about this episode, it'll tell you about future episodes. Not only that, upcoming projects that I'm doing, not just Fascinating Nouns related, and you'll never miss an episode. And if you really don't want to miss an episode and have it delivered right to your phone, Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you are interested in other projects, including this one, you can go to DanielJGlenn.com with quick links to every other project that I am doing. Um, thank you so much for listening. End of-
transmission.